Good evening. I'd like to welcome everybody here tonight. Glad everybody got to be with us. I know sometimes on the Sunday nights when the youth are gone and sometimes our numbers seemed very little bit, but just glad to look out and see everybody here tonight. I want to start off tonight by asking everyone here a question, a question to think about. Not looking for an answer, just want you to think about that answer to this question to yourself. Before I ask the question, I want you to really think about this question. Put a little bit of thought into your answer before you come up with that conclusion. That question, name five, not four, three, or two, but name five sermons that you've heard in your lifetime that are most memorable for whatever reason, but five sermons that are the most memorable sermons you've ever heard in your lifetime for whatever reason. You'd be a sermon that was the best sermon you've ever heard. Could be a sermon that was the worst sermon you've ever heard. It could be a sermon that was the right sermon at the right time. That somehow it made an impact on your life. It could have been just an okay sermon. But it could have been one of those sermons that was just the wrong subject at the wrong time type of sermons. Give you an example of a wrong time, wrong sermon for the wrong time that made my top five list. It's been over 40 years I can say this. <laughs> Back, it's been well over 40 years, but made such an impact, I guarantee I've never forgot it, neither have a lot of other people. Uh, and neither would anybody else that was there that's still alive. <laughs> but the title of that sermon, The Night of the Frogs. Now, it wasn't a bad sermon. It really wasn't. It was just at the wrong time. See, that sermon was preached on Sunday morning for Mother's Day. Now, guys, like, we're not going to get that. We're not going to understand that. Probably wouldn't even much think much about it when it happened. But once we get in that car to go home, I imagine someone's going to let you know why that was a bad sermon for that particular Sunday morning. You probably hear several times why that was a bad sermon choice, at least, for that Sunday morning. But I joke about that sermon, and there really wasn't anything wrong with the sermon. It was just the fact that it was... Sunday morning, Mother's Day, and could have been a better subject. The mothers in the audience didn't seem to appreciate it. But, you know, people can be funny like that. But back to our question. Think of five sermons that you've heard in your lifetime that made some sort of impact on your or impression, left an impression on you, but for some reason that you'll never forget it. Good, bad, bad delivery, wrong time, just hit the mark, maybe. Maybe it's it was totally missed the mark. Maybe it was totally unscriptural. Or it just hit home and changed your life. Whatever reason, just sermons that, like I said, stuck in your memory. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Can you remember what the, one of those sermons was about? What if I asked you to give, up, give a summary of those five sermons, or even just one of them? 
and what you thought of it. Could you do it? Could you tell me what the preacher said? Could you write a simple outline of that sermon? And my intention isn't here, here tonight isn't to pick on anybody, but simply to make my point before I get onto the title of the sermon. But given this being a Sunday night, I'm sure there are several or some here that if asked, I mean, given a pen and paper, they could give a short outline of several of those sermons that are most memorable to them that they've ever heard. And they could do that probably with not much problem. But I'm also equally sure that there are some here tonight that probably couldn't. But if pressed, why those sermons made that top five list I imagine we'll get some responses like, well, the sermon moved me. The sermon made me feel good. Or even I really related to the way the preacher delivered that sermon. And I'm almost sure there are a few that are thinking, okay, you name your five. <laughs> and that's okay also, because someone actually asked me this question this same question a while back, and it wasn't really that hard. I didn't, at first, I thought it would be. It really wasn't that hard to come up with five. And I pretty much came up with five right off. One of them, and again, it's not really fair because I've had a few weeks to think about this. It's my sermon. <laughs> so I've had time to ponder this. Well, I already gave you one example, the Night of the Frogs. That was just wrong sermon for the wrong time. But uh, number one, I would think the most important sermon or one that left an impact that I've ever heard, and I, I think I've mentioned it before, is a sermon preached by Jimmy Allen, Mr. Jimmy Allen. It was back in the 70s, uh, best I can remember. But I was a teen, in my teenage years uh, when I heard this sermon at a gospel meeting, and it left an impression and it left a lasting effect on me. Uh, I don't remember the exact title, didn't really go research it, but uh, the subject matter that he preached on was hermeneutics. And I know that word gets tossed around a lot by a lot of preachers and different preachers today, but hermeneutics, it's a Greek word, and it's defined as the, the theory and mythology of interpretation, mainly biblical text. And it dates clear back to Aristotle in 360 BC. And it can also be dated all the way back to the character of Hermes in Greek mythical, you know, character who was supposed to be the messenger of the gods, but that's where the word comes from. But pretty much in plain English, it simply means how we read and understand the Bible. Mr. Allen's sermon on hermeneutics was put in such plain language that it made the whole subject just easier for me to understand. Instead of focusing on things of coordinates, subcoordinates, direct inference, indirect inference, silence, silence of the scripture, all this it got a little, you know. But Mr. Allen, when he re relayed all the principles into plain English, he admitted it in such a way that I could relate to. And he did this simply by comparing uh, going into the store, a store and buying a pair of pants and a shirt, something as simple as that, that related to all that and that subject and put it in plain English. But get to that at a later time. I don't want to get too far too far off subject. Uh, one more on my that top five list 
was another one of Jimmy Allen's sermons. And to be honest with you, I remember that start sermon because the first time I ever heard it, it scared me to death. And if you've ever heard it, never heard that, it's, it's actually, I didn't know until later, until actually I started studying deeper in the Bible that he actually wrote a book on it and the title of What Hell Must Be Like. And uh, as a younger teenager, that was really memorable. But uh, he did a fantastic job in a, of, of that. And that's, I've actually gone this last week and listened to it. It's even available online. And it's a very good sermon. Uh, but tonight's sermon, I titled, If I Could Only Preach One More Sermon. First, concerning the title, I chose it because each and every sermon that's preached, that sermon that each and every one of us hear, it all should be delivered and heard as if it were that last sermon to be preached that it could be the last time, the last opportunity to deliver God's word, or the last time it goes both ways, both for the person delivering and also for the hearer. It could be the last sermon, the last opportunity a preacher has to deliver a mess, the message to a congregation, or it could be the last sermon a person is to hear before either leaving this world or before Christ comes again. Same thing. But both are critical importance, but do we put any emphasis on this? Or do we simply come to church and kind of zone out for 30 minutes or so? Again, that kind of goes both ways. I always joke with different ones, different people preach different ways. Some people, when they get up here, they look over the top of people, so other people look at people. I look at people because it doesn't make me nervous but it also tells me if I'm really going off track or if I need to get back on track. But with that, I always joke with Doug because I always, and others that get up here, we can see you. <laughs> so we know when you're going to sleep. I didn't really quite put that together until I was on this end of that. So just a word of caution. But <laughs> do preachers preach? Do they put any emphasis, but do they preach as though that sermon might be their last sermon, their last opportunity to preach the word. It may seem like a morbid subject, but it's a subject we need to realize. That's the reason I started this, by asking about the five most memorable sermons you've ever heard. Were they sermons that warranted being a last sermon? I sometimes think sermons can be both just like people, they can be famous or they can be infamous. Famous being the good famous and infamous being the bad famous. It's sort of just as a matter of what you're famous for, I guess. Sermons are remembered for various reasons. I've heard a myriad of answers, funny stories. Remembered it because of funny stories. He was a talented and gifted speaker. Witty humor, that was, a, I've read that one. He was emotional. He, he pulled at my emotions. He was able to move me. One I mentioned, fear, that could be a, maybe a reason. Or maybe it was the fact that it was totally scriptural. If I were to hear just one last sermon, 
Do I want it to be full of funny life stories? Would I be concerned if it were delivered by an excellent, outstanding speaker? Would it make a difference if that last sermon I heard was from someone who was dynamic and talented speaker? If I were to hear that last sermon, would it make a difference in my salvation if that sermon was full of emotion? Or if I was to hear that last sermon, would it make, it, make you feel better if it was full of humor and just funny life stories? I personally that if I hope that if I were to hear my last sermon, that would it, be, it would be a scriptural sermon, one based on the word. If I were to hear my last sermon, I don't think a bunch about funny stories. Those funny stories won't help me get to heaven. I would hope that, that they, it would be scriptural and that it would be relevant to my situation. The Bible has a few last sermons in it that provided us examples of what and how we're to preach. It shows us what's important for us to hear. For example, Jesus spoke to the people the day before his crucifixion. This very thing is also contrasted with how Jesus spoke to the apostles that night before his death. Jesus was trying to tell them of things to come, but they were more interested with which one of them was going to get to sit at his right side, right side of his throne. But when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus on that day leading up to his crucifixion, we see exactly how Jesus was trying to tell them, you don't understand. You don't see what's happening right here in front of you. You see, Jesus was trying to leave them with some support, leave them with the support they were going to need in the near future after his death. We see the exact same thing with Peter. Peter knowing that this time on, on earth was slowly approaching the end. Peter wanted to leave those Christians with an important message. We see this in 2 Peter with a message he was leaving them with. We read in 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in, the, in this tent, to stir, up, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. But immediately after, after that, Peter tells them that this is probably his last letter. He immediately leads into verse 16 saying, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. <clears throat> Peter was quick to point out that these weren't just a bunch of stories or fables, but that he had had firsthand witness account and record that he was leaving with them. 
But Peter, knowing this was his last letter or his last sermon to the people, he wanted to make sure they knew a few important facts before he left this world. Verse, verses 20 and 21 of 1 Peter one, chapter 1 says, Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter wants the believers to know that this was the word of God and not of their own personal interpretation. Peter also writes to inform the believers of false prophets which were to come. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he starts it off by saying, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there were, will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, who bought, brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. In Peter's final writings, he isn't concerned with wit or humor. Peter wants to ensure that he leaves the faithful with the, of the, with the word and also with a warning of those who will try to deceive them and distort God's word. The Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul does the same thing when he writes his final letters. Best example is Paul's second letter to Timothy. At this point in time, Paul is back in prison in Rome. Paul also knows that his time on this earth is coming to an end. So Paul wants to write to Timothy those things which he feels are important. One trick I learned quite a while back that helped me understand these letters, and it's pretty simple. If, uh, if you've read the Truth For Today commentaries, then you've probably read this. But uh, if you think of a clothesline that's outside, I know it's a stretch for some younger people here, <laughs> but some here still may use a clothesline. But if you think of that clothesline and the two posts on the ends, and then that line's strung in between, if you look and read the first part after you get past Paul's greetings, if you look at that first part, the first meat part of his paragraph, and then take the end of it, those are the two anchoring statements to that book. Then everything else that he lists, in, lists or goes through all fit in between those two anchoring points. It makes Paul a little easier to understand. So just thought I'd, but found that interesting. It's worked for me several times. But so in Paul's final letter in 2 Timothy, after Paul's greetings, starting in verse eight, his first, this first post is gonna be 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began 
but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. Then if we jump to the end, 2 Timothy 4:17, we see the end post of that, which says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, all of Paul's major points that he writes in 2 Timothy, all this, the rest of that, is supported by those two statements. Paul's last letter, or Paul's last sermon, he wants to warn and warn us to be strong in the faith, for us to hold fast to the pattern of sound doctrine. In chapter 2 of Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, or final sermon, he tells us to be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus, that these things he preached, we are to commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He also states that we are to present ourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth there are those who have strayed from the truth that we are to avoid their message he also lists that there that we aren't to quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach and to be patient and in humility correcting those who are in opposition in chapter 3 paul warns us of boasters blasphemers those who are unloving unforgiving slanderers and traitors that we must continue in the things which he has which we have learned and been assured of knowing from whom we learned them from because the holy scriptures which were are able to make us wise for salvation through faith is in jesus christ that all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But just as importantly, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word in chapter 4, to be ready in season and out of season, and warns that a time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Paul finishes up in chapter 4 saying that the time of his departure is at hand, that he's fought the good fight, that he's finished the good race, that he, through it all, has kept the faith. That's an example of a last sermon that Paul delivers, or message Paul delivers to Timothy. Both Peter and Paul, they both leave us with some great examples of last sermons or last messages. 
if I were to preach my last sermon, I really think I would chalk it full of the most major points that I could. That sermon should include everything I wanted to say and warn people against. And exactly, that's exactly what Peter and Paul did in their last messages. Both Peter and Paul knew what Christians in the future would face. That we shouldn't fall prey to false teachings or false teachers. That we are to remain strong in the faith. That we are to preach the word and only the word. Not to be turned away from the truth by fables of men. That we are to know the word. That we are to preach the word. That we are to commit the word to faithful men who are to teach others also. We can learn so much from these last sermons, from these last messages. Things that we need to commit to our hearts. That these issues were so important to these apostles that these messages were so concerning that they warranted being included in their last sermon or last message. So what do we get out of these two examples of last messages or last sermons? What should be included in a last sermon or a last message? One major takeaway, preach the word and only the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 is where he states that we are to preach the word. He charges Timothy before God to preach the word. You, you do some looking up on that. That is a very, very heavy statement, important statement, that committing him to that, that he charges him to do that. Number two, I think goes hand in hand with preach the word, and that is hear only the word. Just as we're to preach the word, we should be just as adamant and faithful to only hear the word and nothing else. That it's our responsibility to ensure that we only hear God's word from this pulpit. I know that we're all blessed with different talents. Some can preach, but all can hear. We at times want to pawn this off to the elders. And it is, their, it is their job to ensure that God's word is preached from this pulpit. But it's equally all of our responsibilities to ensure that we don't allow anything else to be preached. We are to demand preachers to preach only scriptural sermons. And they will only preach scriptural sermons 
if we insist on it. But that burden falls on the congregation as well as the eldership. So that argument goes, how do I know the word? How do I know to rightly divide? How do I know when someone's straying away? Number four, study the word, rightly dividing the word. You know, that excuse, it goes, it goes with all this that, again, how can I know or be sure if someone's preaching the truth or not? Study the word. I know we're all busy. We're all, we all have things that take up our time, but we need to make sure that we're setting aside time to study the Bible. Not when we're gonna be distracted, not when we're gonna be disturbed, but quiet time that we can spend with God's word, even if it means we section off a small section of sleep. I'm really a big fan of sleep, but <laughs> if that's, and that's what I've done, that's, that's when I do most of my, my Bible study. But that's, that's how we know that what we're hearing is God's word and only God's word. Number five, live the word our life as an example first timothy 3 1 through 7 paul's right he's recording the qualifications of elders and in verse 7 paul writes moreover he must have good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil again hear this argument, well, that only applies to elders. That doesn't apply to me. That verse has nothing to do with me. But if we're going to go and talk to others about the Bible and try to show them God's word and what it says, then how are we going to get them to listen unless we have a good reputation? If someone is at the bar on Friday and Saturday nights, then in church on Sunday morning, only, and he wants to come and talk to me about being a Christian, probably not going to go very far. People simply won't give you the time of day if they don't see that through your life that you are genuine, heartfelt, and as the saying goes, you practice what you preach. And number six, spread the word. We are commanded to spread the word. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into the, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If I could only preach one more sermon, don't read anything, anything into that. I'm not dying. <laughs> Nobody's kicked me out, nor has anybody told me to stop. So don't read, don't read anything into there that, that's not there. I just, but I kept reading these, you know, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd Peter. 
Titus and Philemon, and, you know, from Peter and Paul. And I kept thinking of how important these things, these issues must have been to have made their final, at their way into the final writings. These things must have had, or must have been of some importance and must have been some of what they felt or had been mo to have been the most importance to them in order to have been included in this last letter. And if it's important for them to write about, then it must be of great importance for us to learn about. I just want to make one more point, then the lesson is yours for tonight. There's a Greek word, I've heard it pronounced several different ways, Sinaitis, Sinaitisis, anyway, S-E-N-E-I-D-E-S-I-S. If you look it up, it's also, it's used several times in the New Testament, and most translations translate it as conscience. There's a little more to it than that. It carries a connotation of moral conscience that right knowing right from wrong except in a deeper the English language you know you always hear people say that English you know language doesn't do Greek justice and it doesn't because they have so many more, more words they have a specific word for so much more than what anyway that better describes everything but it could be said of everyone here tonight that they are of good moral conscience. Knowing right from wrong. Or you probably wouldn't be here if, it, if you didn't. But you're here for a reason, to study or to hear God's word and to know what's right. But what about when we leave here tonight? What about when we leave here and we're driving home? Say you're driving down the highway. Are you going to drive the same speed that you would do during rush hour on Highway 169 as you would if there was a police officer behind you? Let's compare that Tulsa rush hour versus driving through Shoto or Big Cabin, for instance in the middle of the night, you <laughs> make it even worse. Would you drive the same speeds? My point being is that moral conscience is relative a lot of times, or at least we feel it is. Our moral conscience sometimes depends on the situation. It shouldn't. If we live our lives as Christians, that moral conscience or that moral compass should always be constant. It should be the same all the time, whether we're at work, whether we're at school, whether with our friends versus if we're at church or Sunday school, it should always be the same. Just a couple of questions. 
What would your coworkers say about your moral conscience? What would your friends say about your moral conscience? What does God see when it comes to your moral conscience? Is it always the same? Or is it different when we're away from church or are away from our Christian friends? We always want to extend an invitation at every service because we never know when that last sermon might be preached. So if there's anyone here tonight that has not quite lived a life the way they should have or lived a life for Christ and that you need you've fallen away and you need the prayers of the church or if there's someone here tonight that's made that decision to put Christ on in baptism we just want you to know that the church is here for you and to help you and if you have any need please come as